The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. You found the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Here's the host, Bill Spohn. Hey, welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. COVID-19 has impacted the way people interact for many months now, especially the way people interact with each other in spaces outside of their homes. What do the air quality scientists have to say about the management of indoor air? What kind of measurements are significant and important? Will this pandemic impact the way we do things in HVAC after it subsides? We're pleased to have Steve Pescuzo, manager of Testo's Commercial Division, join us on this podcast to discuss indoor air quality metrics with a keen focus on managing the return to schools after COVID-19. Steve will also share with us his background, his career path, and his keen interest in astrophotography, something I didn't know before this interview. He'll share with us the seven unusual features of Oumuamua, the first known interstellar object detected passing through our solar system. There's some links in the show notes back to Testo products at the True Tech Tools website and to the ASHRAE technical resources for the reopening of schools and universities, which is most of the focus of this conversation. So let's get into Steve Pescuzo teaching us about school IQ, with a little sidetrack on astrophotography. Welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. This is your host, Guillermo Cochiaro. Wait a minute. No, I'm Bill Spohn, but actually my background is Italian, and so is this guy we're talking to today. His name is Steve Pascuzzo, or maybe Pascuzzo if you're American. Steve, how you doing? Doing great today, Bill. Well done on that pronunciation. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's in my blood, really. I just ate some escarole and white beans last night for dinner, so... Beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's the stuff that I love to do, so... So are you from central or northern Italy? My grandparents are actually all from southern Italy, deep south Sicily. They lived within, didn't know each other, my grandparents, but they all lived within about 75 to 100 miles of each other in central to western Sicily. We are from Rogliano in Cosenza. This is on the boot, right? Not the Sicily. Kind of like the top two shoelaces of the boots, the shoelace holes, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking with Steve here today. Uh, Topic is reopening schools and facilities in the light of things that have happened with the pandemic. We're recording this in January 2021. We're getting into our full year of society reacting to all this. And what I really wanted to do is Steve's done some great webinars with us for True Tech. He's also, they're recorded on our YouTube channel. He's also done a lot of webinars and presentations around, put together a lot of great material. Let's dig into Steve's background a little bit and what leads him up to this point of being at least our expert in this area. So Steve, what's your background? It's interesting because when I was a young lad in Connecticut, growing up in Connecticut, and I would look at my dad, I said, Dad, what do you do for work every day? So there was one week where he had uh, bring your child or your kid to work kind of day, and he brought me into this office. And the building had a big word on the front that said York. And I walked in and learned that he was a branch sales manager for one of the York regional offices. And I walk in there and I see Back in that day, it was like blueprints laid out and there's file cabinets everywhere. And I'm like, what do you make though, dad? How do you earn your money? (laughs) And when I got done that day, I was like, I will never do that. (laughs) 
So I developed a interest in the sciences, I think in eighth grade, when my teacher at my Catholic school, Mr. Homko, turned me on to astronomy. And, and that kicked off my focus in the sciences, particularly physical sciences, and went to college and I got my BS in biochemistry and master's in physics, and I was going to continue along that path of being a researcher. And I saw this bulletin on our graduate student bulletin board in the graduate office, and I was like, okay, if I continue with this path, how long A, do I have to finish going to school to get my PhD, and how much can I make? <laughs> so I'm looking at the board, and it said stipend, starting stipend for a assistant professor of microbiology was $25,400. Now, Consider this is back in 1984. And I'm like, is that a lot of money? I think it is. So I'm still living with my four college roommates from undergrad. We're splitting a rent four ways of $800 a month. I'm like, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Maybe I'll continue to stay in school. And then I applied for a position just on a whim. It was an ad in the New Haven Registered newspaper, a company looking for a scientific equipment supply rep. I'm like, oh, this sounds really interesting. So I applied for it, ended up getting the job. And I became a regional manager in sales. So you can imagine going from the scientific side of undergrad and graduate school than being, yeah, I had so naive. So I walk in, I'm like, oh my God. So basically sweating bullets the first two years of learning how to sell things from being a researcher. But what attracted me to it was the fact that I'm entering the labs and I'm talking to the investigators and the researchers about their experiments. And I would just weave in the apparatuses that we used to sell. We used to sell everything from ultra expensive microtomes to scanning electron microscopes, UV microscopes. And, and in that mix were some biological containment devices called laminar flow cabinets and chemical fume hoods. That was my intro to getting involved into HVAC, which I vowed not to do when I saw my father's workplace. And lo and behold, a few years after that, I started working for a company called Lab Conco Corporation. They're a pretty well-known fixture still in the industry today uh, as being one of the largest fume hood manufacturers in the world, along with making uh, really high-quality BSL type 2 biological safety cabinets for containing basically for either personnel protection or product protection. And I was a regional manager with them for uh, about three or four years. And then I was recruited by a startup company out of Boston called Phoenix Controls Corporation. And I was employee number five with them. And it was really a classic startup back in around 1992, I believe it was. And we basically, we were sharing three desks with five people. So two of us had to be on the road all the time. And we were in a office space right above Steve's Ice Cream Shop, which is right next to the actual Cheers bar that you see on the intro the bull and finch tavern is that right yeah exactly so back there near a uh, corner of mass avenue and commonwealth ave and uh, i was with them for about 12 years and we grew that company and then honeywell acquired us and we decided to not work for the big guy for the big man upstairs so we all kind of went, went our separate ways went to work for a competitor for a period of time and then i joined dyke in north america throughout the past six years as a regional manager in the Rocky Mountain in the Southwest uh, U.S. states for their light commercial VRF and VRB systems, high-end residents for custom homes up to commercial buildings. And I uh, was with them the past six years, and now thankfully here with Testo now the past one-year anniversary was last week. Oh, cool. So you're back to the more scientific side, the measurement side, which kind of harkens back to your roots. 
And especially with, it's interesting, we were, I was having this conversation with Doug Goodwin, our VP, and a few of our regional managers. It's where we were saying how fortunate it is that we are here with this company right now because you hate to say something is recession proof, but this really, this market for us is really COVID proof. It's really designed for what Testo does from a instrumentation measurement standpoint. It's been really quite fortuitous for us. You've had a lot of experience, I would imagine, in the last year because you came in right in the beginning of the pandemic. And what was that like? What kind of equipment were you selling? How did you position things? How did things go the last 12 months? It's really interesting because the focus I was brought in to basically kind of a new commercial division really focused on indoor air quality. And when I joined the company the first week of January of last year, that was literally, let me think here, gosh, that was maybe 11 weeks before COVID. So it was pretty quickly that we had to pivot and we started to pivot. And the focus there was maybe we can provide high quality measurement instrumentation to quantify outside airflow, to bring in more fresh air into all kinds of facilities. And actually leading up to the COVID outbreak, which really kind of kicked in the gear in April and May of last year, we were really focusing our instrumentation, particularly our IAQ measurement technology, on providing mitigation of high CO2 levels in commercial building spaces because there's been quite a bit of new research over the past three or four years in regard to the inverse relationship between high CO2 levels and reduction of cognitive performance. And lo and behold, when COVID hit about 12 weeks later, it turns out that CO2 is now really considered to be what's called a co-surrogate or a proxy to high potential for COVID-19 transmission. So it was really kind of an easy transition to take what we were doing on the instrumentation flow measurement side for quantifying CO2 in commercial buildings and then melding that into COVID mitigation. And the other thing that actually happened at that point in time was had a conversation with our management. I was researching our product line because Testo's background is we have one foot into providing data logging technology for all environmental parameters in the food science, biopharma, and life science space. So I'm looking at the products that we had on that side, which we weren't really exposed to on the commercial HVAC in our side. And I noticed that we had a product called the Testo 160, and I was like, wow, this really fits the new ASHRAE guideline that was just released in July. So we had a conversation. So we quickly, the Testo 160 system over to the commercial side, and it's really fit incredibly well to really solve some problems from the standpoint of basically quantifying what is effectively happening in high-populated enclosed rooms, such as classrooms or laboratories or libraries. And the big important thing there is it's been identified that COVID is highly transmissible via air. There's a lot of research and contention yeah, back and forth all summer and yeah. fall along. Yeah. In the medical community back then, what was that? You know, was it most by contact or whatever? But there's been a, a number of studies that have been produced and links that have been created to actually verify that transmittance is just as viable as contact for this virus. I would encourage listeners, if you want to get like the real in-depth technical details, we do have, like I said, two webinars that are on the True Tech YouTube channel that Steve presented on our behalf that you can dial in to all these specifics here. So what, if anything, are you doing like in your own personal life to measure or monitor these things? 
You mean as far as applying it to non-commercial applications? Yeah, I mean, or what would you recommend somebody like an individual do? Because a lot of times people have to walk up to an issue and understand it and appreciate it sort of on their own human personal level. What would you recommend in that progression? That's really interesting because I've been thinking about that quite a bit over the past couple of months. And there's definitely a need to measure at least CO2 and relative humidity in a residential home space because the fact that we are all now predominantly working out of our homes as our office. And unlike commercial buildings, which have quite a bit of designed outside fresh air coming in, most, I would probably venture to guess that 98% of all homes, even new construction homes, are 100% recirculation. And the fact that if your home was built, say, after the mid-80s, where most new homes, even though they're stick-built, were still wrapped in Tyvek, which will tend to tighten up the permeability of air being leaked into a house. There's a big concern as far as fresh air intake now in newer homes. As a matter of fact, it really came about back in the early 90s when there was a huge outbreak of mold and black mold in Austin, Texas. And if you remember that, but there were hundreds and thousands of homes and the homes were built quite tight. And in Austin, you think it is a semi-arid climate, but they do get heavy rain from February through April. And a lot of homes actually had to be either mitigated or even, even the owners had to move. So the fact that today, again, if you're in a recently built home over the past, say, two decades, it really would behoove you to measure CO2 content in the home. Because a lot of people don't realize when you go outside, you know, the background part per million content of CO2 is about about 400 parts per million, parts per million give or take five or 10 parts per million. And even though CO2 is actually a natural gas that occurs in our atmosphere that we breathe, just like nitrogen and oxygen, it is poisonous. But unlike carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, which has really quite evident physical effects on us, if that part per million content goes up just by a little bit, say from a furnace leaking out of the heat exchanger, you can change the CO2 level by a factor of three times from going outside at 400 parts per million to walking inside to being close to 1,600, 1,200 parts per million. And you're not going to notice that, not right away. I have a lot of inside monitors, indoor monitors for CO2. And we actually, we just moved into a new house where we have more like a commercial system than a typical residential system. It's a energy recovery ventilator that actually has a CO2 sensor in it. And I've got mine set to ventilate when the CO2 goes above 800 ppm. That's based on this commercial logic or the research that's come about recently. And I feel very lucky they have that here because when I used to measure at the house we used to live in, my office, people know this, I'm full of hot air. My office used to get up to... (laughs) Right, twelve hundred, sixteen hundred, eighteen hundred ppm, and it really, it starts to debilitate. It starts to affect your thinking. It it starts to affect your mood even. And there's also a huge effect on sleeping. And anybody with sleep apnea, you're reducing the amount of available oxygen. I'm going to get off the soapbox, but it's really important what you're talking about here. And that's why I sort of wanted to bring in that personal aspect. Because I think if you think about it personally, you're probably going to be more likely to talk about it in your work setting and to bring it up and to bring that personal experience to bear in that setting. Yeah, absolutely. There is definitely a place in our industry to really move and migrate this technology to the residential side. And that's not really being 
done that well today for a number of reasons, but there's a huge opportunity there. And it's really a win-win solution, both from the manufacturer, distributor, and the homeowner. And there's really no downside into doing this. So you did this pivot, and I'm learning now, it's like more like in July when you really started to say, hey, we have a series of devices that measure physical parameters that can be applied to this use case, this application. And you probably, I know this for a fact, but can you tell us about, you quote unquote, get on the road with webinars and even some visits and some trainings. What did you find or learn that changed your point of view as you went across, say, like the last six months of training and communication on this? The main focus, I think, in our industry with in regard to CO2 and COVID has been really narrowly focused for us on schools and the fact that, again, research shows you know, I think initial concerns by a lot of medical doctors, particularly in epidemiology, were that, oh my gosh, children with partially developed immune systems are going to be the most susceptible to this. As it turns out, they are, and they do pick it up as easily as any adolescent or adult, but it doesn't affect them the same way. And quite oftentimes, they're more of a vector to transmit the virus to their parents, their grandparents when they come home at the end of the day, as opposed to you know, entire classroom becoming sick and not showing up for class. So the interesting thing is that even though ASHRAE developed this amazing standard in really blinding speed time, the research was just fresh hot off the presses back in April and May. And by July, in the middle of July, they had a 42-page document. It was really well thought out on first how to measure the performance of your HVAC system in your school, and then how to prep it the best way you can within the means that you have in your school district to get it ready to safely occupy for the students and then keep it safe during occupancy, right? And the thing I found out, and right at that time, a lot of the industry, regional and national shows kick off in January, February, and March and whatnot. And a lot of them went viral but I still did quite a bit of traveling up until the end of March and then did a few more trips in November and October. And it's interesting, what I found out was that still a lot of our professional people in our industry were unaware of the ASHRAE guideline. And that surprised me. And then the other thing I realized was that there's an assumption in in our marketplace that schools are not going to have the money to make all these changes. Well, in point in case, a lot of the school districts, particularly and it's just the states that I was able to travel to, like Florida and the Carolinas and, and in California, I live here in Arizona, they've already passed approved bond issues, approved tax increases to fund these major HVAC retrofits and upgrades to make them safer for students during occupied hours. So a majority of the people in our industry, I think the assumption is that schools don't have the money. They have various accesses to money to get these mitigation efforts underway and started. That's a good thing. So what I'm getting at is that this is still an educational process, even with our contractors, even the facility engineers or supervisors that work in some of these schools are unaware of the new ASHRAE guideline, which is surprising. But then again, that's called job security. Yeah. <laughs> I know you probably this before, but after we finish here today, can you shoot me the link on that? I'll put it in the show notes so someone listening to this can go back to their podcast app and click on it. And as I recall, like a lot of the ASHRAE documents are behind a paywall, but this one in particular is not as sort of a public service. Is that correct? Yeah, it is free. If you just go to ASHRAE, I, I would just Google search ASHRAE under epidemic 
task for comma schools. And that should bring you directly to their webpage and, and that link. And as a matter of fact, Ashray has done this a couple of steps better. In August, they produced a similar document for commercial buildings. So there are now two documents out now, and then they produced a third document just on identifying and talking about the filtration aspect of this new mitigation guideline. So they basically took the filtration aspect, which is about three or four pages out of the 42 pages of the first document, and they expanded it because I think there's also a lot of questions and assumptions that basically ASHRAE is stating that, hey, you really need to start off by putting in MERV 13 filters. And I think there's still a kind of an old wives tale or belief in our industry that, oh my God, we can't put this in. MERV 13 is going to create too much back pressure. My fans weren't designed to actually handle these filters. The answer to that is maybe, sometimes not, and maybe yes. And it really depends on the age of the system. But there are some quite good filters out there right now by a few manufacturers that require less than 0.2 inches of pressure drop across the filter to have it work. And some are even down to about 0.16 inches. I think the other thing that we need to do as educators in our industry is also make the schools aware and our customers aware of the fact that these guidelines are really only for pandemic events. So once we determine that nationwide that this pandemic is over, then you don't need to go back and continue to use MERV 13 filters if you don't want to. So you can go back to the regular operational procedures. And that's the other thing that also changed as well. ASHRAE instituted startup and pre-occupancy HVAC guidelines on how to prep any school before the school is occupied. But again, once that pandemic is over, for the next one hits, who knows when that will be. But you can actually put these guidelines aside and only bring them out when we're in this in the pandemic event. Yeah, it's not a permanent change, like you said. It's until things accommodate. You mentioned something before we started recording and alluded to it in sparking your interest in Catholic school and astronomy. Let's break away and talk about your hobby, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, one of my many hobbies. I'll never have a problem retiring. That's for sure. I've got plenty of things to do. And I always tell my kids, they're like, dad, how long do you want to live? I said, you know what? I could use another two to 300 years easily. To work through all this. Yeah. There's so much stuff I still want to do and not enough time to do it in. But my main core hobby is astronomy. I'm an astrophotographer. Also, actually, I've got the book right here in front of me. It's called Exoplanet Observing for Amateurs, second edition by Bruce Gary. So I'm going to be getting into doing some exoplanet research and hopefully discovery using what's called the transit method to hopefully find new exoplanets. So that's one of my focuses within my hobby of astronomy, but I also just go out and do general astrophotography. You know, living here in the great Southwest in Arizona really affords, compared to growing up in Connecticut, and you know about the East Coast or Northeast, Bill, if we had, or if we have two or three clear nights a month. That's pretty much standard. Out here, we probably have 80% of the evenings 100% clear, cloudless. You can find me on a Thursday or actually a Friday night, Saturday night, heading probably 120 miles east of Scottsdale, heading up to the eastern mountains up above the Mogollon Rim. And it's interesting, it's only about an hour and 20 minute drive. But in the hour and 20 minutes, I go from 1600 feet elevation to 7400 feet. So with a lot of that water vapor below me with clear skies, you can really 
have some great images, both wide field. And a lot of people don't realize if you've got a DSLR, a Canon or a Sony, and it's got a what they call a kit lens, regular lens that you bought with the camera, all you need is a tripod and you can go out and take amazing images of the Milky Way with the stuff you have right in your house today. And a lot of people don't realize that. There's a little formula called the 500 rule, where basically you take 500 and you divide it by the focal length of your lens. So if your lens is a 50 millimeter lens, 50 divided by 500 or 15 to 500 goes 10 times. So that means you can do a 10 second exposure without getting any star trails. So the whole key is when you image the night sky, you want those stars to be just as we see them with our visual or with our own eyes. They're just points of light and you want to avoid that star trail effect. So one of the things is use that 500 rule. But the higher up you go in optical quality, if you're really what we call a pixel peeper, a pixel peeper is a person that wants to have a really a print that's 20 by 18 inches and you want to have the highest resolution possible. Well, then you take that 500 number, you start reducing it down to 400 or 300 so that you don't see any kind of star trailing from one pixel to the next pixel on your imaging sensor, on your DSLR. So that's some of the things that I do. So does that tie into the transit method? you have enough information to explain that? Yeah. So the transit method has been used by professional astronomers over the past, let's see, 25 years to discover exoplanets around stars. And the way the transit method works is, and it's really, it's a lot of luck, even at the professional level, but the transit method means that it is a good example. Do you remember back, maybe it was 15 years ago, we had a transit across the face of the sun of Venus back, I think it was like in 2006, maybe, or 2005. So basically the inner planets in our solar system, as they move in orbit, we're in the elliptical plane that we're up pretty much plus or minus four degrees off of being parallel to the sun's orbital rotational period on its axis. So any planets that are between us and the sun, they're going to be obviously between us and the sun. So we're going to see those pass in front of the sun once or twice every couple of decades. So when the Venus transits across the first surface of the sun, if you've got any kind of decent quality CCD imaging chip, which we all have now in cameras, and you have a little bit of software, you can actually see the light fall off or the drop of the sun's output being blocked by Venus, even though as a percentage, Venus is probably 0.0001% from an area standpoint of blocking off the surface of the sun. But there is going to be definitely a drop in photons that are being collected on the CCD chip. So now pull back from our distance, which is one astronomical unit from the sun, 93 million miles. So to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 light years. So basically any planets around any other star would have to be number one in our line of sight. So we've got to actually be in the same orbital plane as other solar systems to actually catch these transits across the surface of their sun. And again, even with any Canon, Nikon, decent quality camera body, and with a, probably a 200 millimeter lens tracking mount, a tracking mount is basically gonna, is gonna follow the rising and setting of the stars and the sun so that again, you're not gonna get any star trailing. And if you image an area of the sky for three or four minutes and maybe for an hour a night, and you keep focusing on that same area the next night and the next night, you should be able to pick up a exoplanet, but it gets a lot of tedious work because then you've got to measure that photon drop across each of the stars in that field that you've captured on your image. 
So it takes quite a bit of time. But if you're into discovery, which I am, I think at the end of the day, we develop businesses because it's our interest. But at the end of the day, I think we do it because we all want want to stay relevant. And one of the things about being relevant is to be noticed. But I love what I do in my hobby. And the byproduct of it is, hey, if I discover an exoplanet, or I also do asteroid research as well, as even more fun, I think, finding new asteroids, because there's a benefit there as well. We had the Chelyabinsk small asteroid hit Russia back about seven or eight years ago. And that was about the size of a large SUV, about 10 tons, 20 tons. But it shattered windows in Chelyabinsk, Russia, on a radius around 50 miles and injured over a 1,000 people because it exploded 10 miles above the surface of Chelyabinsk. So if that tiny little asteroid actually hit and made it down to the Earth, probably would have created a crater the size of meteor crater here in Arizona, which is about a mile wide and a 1,000 feet deep. So NASA does an incredible job these days of finding a lot of the metropolitan size to regional size asteroids that can create regional havoc from an impact standpoint. But they, because of a lot of their instrumentation they use to quantify and find these asteroids are space-based, their CCD chips are so sensitive, they stay away from the plane of where the sun is. So if we have sun approaching asteroids, either like before sunrise or sunset, which is actually what happened in Russia, that was a sun approaching asteroid out of the sun side, but at sunrise, our orbital satellites are, that are specialized in picking up NEOs or near-Earth objects is really compromised. So it's really up to amateur astronomers like me and many others to actually try to help discover these small bodies that the major professionals can't really search for. So that's another one of my interests. This is fascinating for me because I've always had my head in the stars since being a kid of the Apollo generation. One thing I want to ask you about, and I can't even pronounce the name of that longish asteroid that passed through our... Oumuamua. Oumuamua, which means visitor. Is that correct? Something like that? In Hawaiian, it means visitor or scout. Scout. Yep. Okay. So tell me, what do you think about that? Because somebody, I thought I read an article from someone from Harvard recently said it has extraterrestrial origins. I would say it has extraterrestrial tendencies. I know this pretty well because I, I'm a fan of that. That's Professor Dr. Avi Loeb. He is actually the head uh, chair person at Harvard's astronomy department. So he's not a slouch. He's not a goofball. But he's one of the first that actually did a number of analyses. And he came up with about seven unusual features or aspects of this asteroid or so-called asteroid that doesn't fit the profile of anything that we've ever seen well, number one, it is of extraterrestrial origin because basically it came in in what they call a hyperbolic type of path. It came in through the top of the solar system and exited out of the bottom. So it was 90 degrees perpendicular to the orbital plane of all of our planets. But when the astronomers looked at the data, it was actually what's called sitting in the frame of reference of all the stars in our region, there are about 500 stars in a cube, about 15 light years as a volume of space. And this asteroid was actually sitting in that volume of space at the galactic frame of reference. So if you took the average orbital speed of all the stars in our local area, that's the speed that Oumuamua was also traveling at. So it's really quite unusual that it was just sitting out there. So what actually happened is we, our solar system, actually ran into it. It's not that it was approaching us at a couple hundred thousand miles an hour, which is what our perceived speed was when it came into our purview to actually discover it. But it was actually sitting out there almost like a buoy. 
So that was unusual. Then number two, it had a really high albedo. And albedo in scientific terms is reflectivity. So albedo was 10 times normal, that of a typical asteroid. Then the third weird thing was that its aspect ratio, so as it orbits, that light level is going to increase and decrease. You can actually characterize its shape by looking at that light curve picked up by a photomultiplier tube, which is like a CCD chip. And the light curve was so steep was that they found out that the aspect ratio of its diameter length was at least 10 to 1. So almost like a cylinder or a long, yeah, I guess a cylinder-shaped object, right? A tube or something, yeah. But the most confounding thing that really threw astronomers was that, because the big debate was, okay, is it a comet? Is it an asteroid? So after it passed the sun, normally if it's a comet, even when you approach, it came within 0.15 AUs of our Earth. So that's roughly about 9.3 million miles at closest approach. But on its way out, Spitzer Space Telescope really took a good close look at it, and there was no outgassing. So astronomers were like, oh, so it must be an asteroid. But then about a few weeks later, they noticed it started changing its trajectory. <laughs> So it actually changes trajectory and its outgoing speed increased. And the only way they could quantify this and kind of the astronomers were really grasping us. So I was like, okay, well, maybe it's outgassing pure H2O because H2O, if it's a pure molecule of H2O with no kind of impurities, the Spitzer Space Telescope would never pick that up, which is true. But we've never encountered any asteroid object that had pure H2O. They don't. There's always a mix of other dirts and ices and, and organic compounds. It's not like deionized water. It's not designed. <laughs> yeah. It's just happening, natural phenomena. That was a strange characteristic number of three or four there, that it changed direction and speed as it was exiting. And then some astronomers were saying, well, geez, it's got to be something unusual, maybe the calculation was that if it changed direction and speed by that much, it's pretty easy to calculate how much mass it would have to shed by looking how much its change of its predicted orbital path went off plus its speed increase. And it turned out that the object had to shed about 100,000 tons of its own mass to make that change. But there's no recorded imaging data either in the infrared or, or ultraviolet or anywhere that any of that took place. So it's a mystery. So using statistics, a lot of the astronomers, including Dr. Bogue, said, okay, well, the fact that we just launched this satellite is called PanStars. So PanStars actually discovered the asteroid within about three months after it's starting to operate. Like, okay, so this must be a very common object. Maybe we just have never had a satellite with the right telescopes, and right wavelengths to spot these interstellar visitors before the fact that we found it within three to four months of starting this new probe, which was designed to actually find these new interstellar bodies, and we did. So they did a calculation. They said, okay, in the volume of space between the sun and the earth, there should be about 15 or 20 of these in this space at any one given time. We just happened to find one. And they said, okay, if it is a natural origin asteroid, we should find one of these every month here on out after that. Well, now it's been almost three years, and we haven't found anything else, which is strange, characteristic number five now, <laughs> because Dr. Loeb said, if we don't find another one, and that means this was an unusual event, and that means it may be of a non-natural origin, meaning extraterrestrial. So the possibilities are there. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. I think we're going to wrap up the podcast here, but it's just, you leave us kind of, leave me hanging on my seat in terms of 
what this could be. And if the listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Yeah, best way is my personal email is steve, so steve109, and as in nancy at gmail. That's the best way to reach me. And actually, if someone's really interested to look into this deeper, Dr. Avi Loeb has actually done a number of podcasts on a great YouTube channel called Event Horizon. And Event Horizon is a product of a gentleman named John Gauthier. And he actually is a science fiction writer, but he does an incredible job. It's really more of a video podcast. So the graphics he's got in the background, along with the discussion with the scientists he has on every Thursday. But he's interviewed Dr. Avi Loeb three times over the past three years about Oumuamua and other topics about extraterrestrial opportunities to find and discover potential inhabitants elsewhere around the universe. As a matter of fact, there's been a new thing that just came up is that Proxima Centauri, which is our closest stellar neighbor, which is a star, it's actually a, it's a red dwarf star around Alpha Centauri. Uh, Proxima Centauri B is a Earth-sized habitable planet in that solar system. And the Breakthrough Listen Project out of the Bay Area has been looking for steady signals for about the past four years. And they just picked up a signal from that solar system, and it's passed all their filters, meaning that it is not of terrestrial origin. Or a natural event or natural phenomenon, yeah. Yeah, or from a sat- man-made satellite or anything like that. So, that, so oh, right, something coming from near-Earth orbit that's yep. man-made things that are wrecking the signal. Wow. Wow, absolutely. Wow. This was a fascinating turn in the podcast here to what you got us into. Yeah, I don't know how to bring it back to Testo at this point, but. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Testo's got a round logo, which is shaped like a planet. There you go. Yeah, it's kind of shaped like a G-type star. It's like an amber color. Yep. So we did. There's a tie in there. (laughs) All right, we've got a stake in the ground. We're back in home base now. Yeah. I really want to thank you, Steve. This is great. Want to get this produced and out there to the listeners. Some really interesting content. And again, take heed of some of the topic of discussion here about reopening schools and facilities and what products like Steve offers from Testo can do for you. Yeah, really important because that product, the 160, easily applied for residential application and particularly commercial buildings. And this link between cognitive performance and high CO2 is a real thing. So even after COVID goes away. Well, I want to thank you for coming on again, Steve. I appreciate it. And thank the listeners for listening in. Thank you very much, Bill. It's been fun. thank you for listening to this podcast about school IAQ. A little sidelight on astrophotography here with Steve Pascuzzo from Testo. There's other trade-related resources and influencers out there that we really appreciate working with, like Brian Orr at the HVACR School and Caleb Salibi, Zach Ciotta of HVAC Shop Talk, Stephen Reardon, the HVAC Reefer Guy, Mike Mayberry, Tool Pros with Brent and Billy, and Service Business Mastery with Tersh, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, Corbett and Grace Lunsford of Home Diagnosis TV, and of course, Jim Bergman and the Measure Quick YouTube channel, all the great things he does in interviews regarding Measure Quick. Here's a thought for today. It's a quote by Brian May, one of the members of the band Queen, and also an astrophysicist, degreed astrophysicist. The quote is, astronomy is much more fun when you're not an astronomer. If you're interested in Becoming a sponsor or getting a guest on the Building HVAC Science podcast, please email me at bill at truetechtools.com. 
Some of the topics we discuss require technical training for proper interpretation or safe execution. So if you're a trained pro, you can go ahead and do it. But if not, please consult and hire a trained pro. The Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. Thanks again for listening. We hope to have you back next time on the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Take care.